Hello and welcome. This is Colleen O'Grady, the host of the Power Your Parenting Moms of Teens podcast. This is a gathering place for moms of preteens, teens, and young adults. My mission is to first and foremost support and encourage you, mom, so that you can live well and reclaim your life. Two, the show will help you have the best possible relationships with your teens so that you can communicate, motivate, and guide them effectively and actually enjoy them. And third, I will bring you top-notch guests who will share the newest in adolescent research and trends so you can be prepared and aware of what your teens are facing today. Always you will leave each episode armed with practical parenting tips. Welcome back, everyone, to the 245th episode of Power Your Parenting Moms of Teens podcast. Our featured guest, Nancy Tingler, is a seasoned investor and mother. She shares her unique approach to improving the financial IQ of children. Drawing from personal experiences, she turned every shopping trip into an investment research exercise for her son and daughter. While some moments were embarrassing, the lasting impact is evident as our adult children manage investments with the acumen of professionals. Tune in as our guest underscores the importance of leveraging everyday experiences to build financial knowledge, emphasizing the unique perspective and strengths women bring to the world of investing. Practical tips for listeners include incorporating investment research into daily activities, discussing brands and trends with friends and children, and fostering financial literacy through opening brokerage accounts for children. Nancy Tingler's career as a portfolio manager spans 40 years. She is currently the CEO and Chief Investment Officer of Laffer Tingler Investments. Nancy is a passionate advocate for women's financial literacy, and she leads the firm's Women and Wealth Initiative. Nancy is a sought-after TV and print financial commentator on local and national media outlets. She lives in Incline Village, New York, with her two labs and hikes the Tahoe Trail daily. Tune in as our guest underscores the importance of leveraging everyday experiences to build financial knowledge, emphasizing the unique perspectives and strengths women bring to the world of investing. Welcome, Nancy Tingler. Thanks so much for having me, Colleen. Yes, yes. The first question I ask all my guests is, are you a mom? And if so, what are the ages of your kids? Oh boy. Yes, I am. And they are 35 and 33. So I'm an old mom. Well, that you still count as a mom. You've lived through all the years. Yeah. And you're still a mother. That's for sure. Yeah. It never goes away, does it? No, it doesn't. <laughs> yes. So you have written a book called The Women's Guide to Successful Investing. And I think you have a second edition. Can you talk about why you wrote the book in the first place and then why you have a second edition? Yeah, absolutely. So I actually retired from the investment business for the first time. I'm back in when I was 42. And uh, by the way, that was the hardest job was being at home raising kids. I mean, I was <laughs> always there, but I had my mom's help when I was working. And I met all these really smart women who were completely unconnected with the financial aspects of their marriage and their family. And when they asked me what I used to do for a living, I would say, well, I was chief investment officer and they they kind of recoil. And so it became really important to me 
to engage women in the process because the age of the first divorce for women in the United States is 30 years old. Wow. The average age of a widow in the U.S. is 59. I was 59. It's way too early. And it's a bad time to be learning about investing when you're grieving for a lost spouse or angry or lost after a divorce. So I want to engage women early on in the process and also particularly so they can teach their kids because as a nation, we're raising an economically and financially illiterate group of generations. I mean, it's not just recent. It's a long-term trend. So there's a lot of ways that I did that. But, you know, with the tip of the hat to the fact that most women are very busy and they think, and I write about this, how can I add one more thing in my plate? But there's ways that you can do this by living. And the statistics also show that women make better investors than men. So the fact that we're excusing ourselves from the conversation is tragic for the family balance sheet and the family income statement. Oh my goodness, I have so many questions for you. But let's start with my audience are moms of teens and young adults and tweens, probably even younger. So it's the whole gamut probably of parenting. What I know about tweens and teens and even young adults, and my daughter's 28, is that their go-to is spending money. It's definitely not about investing money or expecting that whatever they want, they can get the money. So what can moms do about that? How can they improve the financial IQ of their children? Yeah. So when I had my son, I had all these noble aspirations. I bought a a share of the stock that I was going to hang in his room so I could talk to him about investing ideals. And then I promptly lost the certificate of the the stock. And so I had to find other ways. And we did a couple of things. The first thing we did was we always matched their savings. So if they saved something, we matched it. When we went to the store and at the dining room table, we talked about companies that we owned in our portfolio. So we're going down the cereal aisle and I would say, okay, you can buy General Mills cereals. Why is that? I mean, everyone's probably cringing because they should have had something much healthier, but um, <laughs> they, they turned out okay. But anyway, and so they would pick a General Mills and we would talk about why we own the stock. And I mean, for the most part, they were engaged. And then around the dinner table, we'd talk about, okay, what products do you love? And I actually got some of my best investing ideas from what they were enamored with from a product standpoint. And then we opened accounts for them and they weren't 529 plans because they didn't have them then, but we opened accounts and then we talked about what we were investing in their portfolio and that this was what they were going to use to pay for half of their college. Because what we decided was we could afford to send them to private schools, but we decided we would finance half of a university level education in California, which is where I raised my family. So at that time, I think it was like 20,000 a year. So we built these portfolios and then we said, you're going to be on the hook for the rest. And both of them got through without any student loans and without depleting their investment portfolios. Wow. So how did they do that? Well, one cheated and went to the Naval Academy. So he has a, <laughs> where the education is free, but then you have to give them your life. He has a much bigger portfolio than his sister, but she had a small basketball scholarship and she worked. And then, you know, when she went to school during the great financial crisis, when she left college, her investment portfolio, and this is the power of staying invested in the market, her portfolio was bigger than when she started. And she did take money out of it to pay the remainder of her tuition. So 
it's never too late and it's never too early to start saving. And I talk about that in the book and how you get started, even if you think you have no money. Okay, well, that's wonderful. Well, let's just start with that because I'll come back to the teens and young adults and stuff. And But how do you start? Let's say there's a mom out there right now that she just got divorced or she's been widowed and she's just like, I don't know how I'm going to make it. Like, I'm going to teach her salary. And she's just overwhelmed. Like, yeah. where do you start? And boy, have I been there. I mean, my father walked out when I was 13. My mom got a job. Then she got another job. Then I got a job. And so money became very important to us because we didn't have any. And that's how I taught myself. So I use a lot of case studies of women in similar circumstances and or myself. And the lessons I've learned from my super wealthy clients and then also just from School of Hard Knocks. And one of the things that's so wonderful now is, and was not the case many years ago, is that you can open a brokerage account with zero dollars. You used to have to meet a minimum. And you can buy fractional shares of a stock. So let's say you're a big Chipotle fan and Chipotle's trading at, I think, something like $1,500 a share. You can actually buy one one hundredth or whatever the fraction. If you have $50, you can buy a portion of Chipotle in your portfolio. And so what I encourage women to do is open an account because that's the first step. And then, you know, we can talk about exchange traded funds later. I like stocks. And so I want to, you know, buy things I know, which was the advice of the great investor, Peter Lynch. He also said, if you have a fifth grade math in your education, you have enough skill to invest in stocks. So it's not mysterious. And that's really what I try to do with the book is demystify all of the concepts. There's a glossary in the back. There's 12 intelligent investing rules. And there's critical lessons that I've learned over the years. But back to your question, you can start with zero. You can save 25 to $50 to 10. I mean, whatever you can spare. And you put that into your account and you buy fractional shares of stocks. And over time, the compounding of that becomes incredibly powerful. One of the case studies I talk about is a woman named Stephanie Mucha who didn't even start investing until she was on her retirement, a fixed income, and was retired. And when she died, now she, full disclosure, she lived to be 102. But when she died, she had accumulated and given away $5 million. Uh, wow. so it is accessible to everyone. It does not matter how old you are. And you just take what you can spare and I draw comparisons between, because most women identify as good savers and they think that they're doing themselves a favor by not taking the risk in the stock market. So I compare what would happen at current savings rates. So this was, you know, I think I finalized the manuscript in February. So plus or minus 1% versus what you would earn in stocks on average since in the early 1900s. And the difference is compelling. And my first intelligent investing rule for women is that women typically, the biggest risk that women take is they don't take enough risk. Oh, that's good. That's good. You're so right. It can feel like you're being irresponsible to put money in a stock market. But it's the opposite, Colleen. That's really what I spend a lot of time on that because it's an old habit and it, mm -hmm. dies, you know, it dies hard. But again, because women do more research, because you think about how we operate within the household, we tend to make most of the purchases. So we do more research, as the research shows. We are less competitive than men, so our returns are better. And we're more patient and disciplined because we have to be in every day of our life, right? Mm. Juggling all the things we're juggling. So 
I really hope that women will embrace this. And they did the first edition, which was by the publisher, and asked me to write second edition, which, by the way, is much better than the first one, in my view. That's really a good point, because patience is probably really needed with the stock market. It is. And I give a lot of examples. So I bought Starbucks for my kids, actually, in 2007, and the stock had fallen from grace as a growth stock. This was after Howard Schultz left for the first time. And it went from 45 to $30. And I thought I was super smart because I bought it and immediately went up like 15% because he came back to the company to fix all the problems. And then we had the great financial crisis. And I mean, this may sound really immature to your listeners, but when the stock market goes down, I don't look at my statements because I don't want to do the wrong thing. And so I just tossed them in a drawer and the stock, and I was busy. I was retired then. So I was busy driving carpool and going to Costco. By the way, I'd have bought Costco to stock instead of, you know, items in bulk at that time, I'd be extraordinarily wealthy. But I bought Starbucks and Starbucks went down to $7 a share. Wow. I didn't sell it because I wasn't really paying attention at that point. I didn't buy more, which I should have. But since that time, Starbucks has returned over 14% annually and the market, and the market is up 8%. So if you're buying great companies, I call them stocks to own for a lifetime, you can weather the storms because the managements will figure it out if they're iconic, great companies. Think of Apple. It was a stock I bought in 2012. Everybody said Tim Cook is no Steve Jobs. Well, good thing because the stock's up about fivefold from where Tim Cook took over. So there's a lot of examples like that where I give the hard data. Here's what I did. Here's how it worked out. And there was a lot of problems in between. So what would you say to the moms who kind of defer to their husbands around finances? Well, two-thirds of women, I did not say this, two-thirds of women fire their advisor within the first year after the money spouse departs one way or another. Mm. And that's because the relationship with the financial advisor is with the husband, typically. And when I retired, I was the chief investment officer for a very large firm in San Francisco. I knew everybody in the business. My husband and I interviewed a bunch of firms because I didn't want to have to do this, you know, while I was home. And so I ended up doing it, by the way. But we'd go to these meetings and the people knew me and they'd say, well, Doug, this is my husband. What do you think your risk profile is? And he'd go, I don't know. What do you think, Nance? And the whole meeting went like that. And it really offended me, not as a feminist, but because it was so inefficient and that's still going on. So we encourage our women clients I mean, I'm not convinced every woman is going to invest around assets, but if you know the lingo and you encourage or require your advisor to be transparent, you make a better client and they will do better work for you. And so that's one of the reasons I include the glossary as well as the lessons in the intelligent investing rules and then all the case studies, because that reinforces what I'm saying. But you also don't want to be learning how to invest or getting to know your advisor after the event. I was the one that managed our family money and there was enough stress when my husband passed away, which was well telegraphed because he had cancer, but you're still not prepared. And it's consuming time, especially if you have young kids, but any age kids. And so there's just so much to be done. And, you know, I made a couple of mistakes, which I write about in the book, but happily our portfolios remained invested during that time. Yeah. All right, I'm going to kind of change direction for a second here. So one of the themes of my work with moms is that we need to be the model that our teens and 
young adults aspire to be. So how can we be models for our kids in terms of finances? So we're talking about it. I mean, I now have, my kids are adults now, but I now have a family meeting and we go over what we have, what they will have. But we just talked a lot about it. And of course, my kids knew what I did, but we were also always talking about being responsible. And so when our son went to the Naval Academy, they actually get paid a couple hundred dollars when he went as freshman because they can't leave the campus, but they could on Sunday and he would blow it all at Chipotle. And so we started showing him, okay, <laughs> here's what will happen if you go to Chipotle with half the money, but you also invest the other half. And so he's become a really good investor as he's grown up and said, yeah, I mean, I can make my own food. He's also turned into a gourmet cook. But that's one of the things that we did. The other thing is there's an organization, the National Council of Economic Education. They give a test and it's in the preface to the first edition. The average adult gets a C on basic economics test. The average high schooler gets an F. And so in your state, there is more likely than not, I think they're in 36 states, a local, a statewide chapter. So I sat on the board of the Arizona Council of Economic Education, where they teach the stock market games in schools. But you can get the materials yourself just by going on the website. And you can teach your kids about investing using their materials that have input from people like me. And you can ask for it to be taught in your classroom. And I just spent an hour with a young woman who made the investment club at her high school, and she was asking me for advice. First of all, she was the only woman. And second of all, you know, what should she be thinking about looking at? And it's so impressive what the reports these students write and the decisions they make. And it, they started as early as grade school. Yeah, that was my question I was going to ask you is how early do you start helping your teens with financial IQ stuff? As soon as they can comprehend. So we had very sporty kids. You know, we talked about, you know, one of the stocks that they liked was Nike, which may seem obvious, but at the time was a great investment and continues to be. And so we would talk about, okay, well, what else? Well, Apple computers and the iPhone wasn't yet in place until they were, I think, middle school or high school. But, you know, we talked about those things. Like, what do you think about this product? How do you like it? What do you think is good about it? What differentiates it? And then as they get older, they get more sophisticated. And we talked about dividends because dividends are a powerful component of total return and they grow. So it's a perfect hedge against inflation. So as mothers begin to understand these basic concepts, I mean, one of the questions the young woman asked me was, what's the price earnings ratio? And I said, well, think of it the way you think about the price per square foot when you buy a house. If it's in a good location, you get a higher price per square foot. If it has you know, good schools, granite counters, big backyard. And so that's how you value stocks because you're actually buying something real. You're buying a claim on the assets and the earnings of the company. And so it's important to understand the basics, not you don't have to look at the debt to capital ratio. You can make really good decisions also just by looking at what the professionals are buying and then doing some of your own research. This is so great. It's just great practical advice. And you're kind of demystifying all this investment stuff that can feel out of reach for people. Well, yeah, Colleen, I mean, I have a degree in psychology, you know, and then I have a master's in creative writing. So mm -hmm. if I can do it as a professional, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh, that's great. So what I know is true is high school kids 
graduate and they become young adults and know they're kind of they're on their own for the first time and they have to learn how to self-manage every area of their life but one of those areas would be finances so how can i know you've been talking about it but just i want to get some more ideas of getting your kids ready to be able to manage their money and be smart with their money in college so one story I'm a therapist, and so I hear all these stories. And I love this story because this girl who was a sophomore in college called her mom and said, I need more money for food. So she was in a freshman dorm the first year and so ate cafeteria food. And now she's in an apartment and she's buying her own food. So I really respected this mom. And she said, well, you have enough money for food. And so she started asking questions like, where are you buying food? And she said, well, Whole Foods and DoorDash. (laughs) I knew that was coming. (laughs) (laughs) So those are the sorts of things that they don't think about. What advice would you have for the moms kind of getting their kids ready for college? You have to start in high school. So we got credit cards in our kids' names. We had co-signed, but it was in their name. So went on their credit report and had very low limits. And we, you know, also explained, because kids are really focused on their credit scores, at least mine were. And so when it becomes their problem, I think that is important. I taught college finance and I get it. Most people don't use a checking account anymore, but this was 10 years ago and they didn't know about insurance or checking accounts. So I used to play that. I don't know if you ever saw the Bill Cosby episode when he was everyone's cherished father on the Cosby show and Theodore wanted to move out. And so he says, okay, you're going to make a thousand bucks. And he's all excited. And then he goes, he starts grabbing, it was Monopoly money. He started grabbing the money for different things. By the end of it, Theodore went, oh, I don't have enough money. And so we did some of that. And then I think then in college, I know people want to give their kids everything they didn't have, but It's the worst thing you can do. When we told our kids from a very young age, you're going to have to pay for half your college. So they worked in high school and they had that expectation that they had familiarity with money that they were going to have to do it themselves. I mean, granted, my son went to the Naval Academy, but we had zero problems and have never had to supplement their income unless we wanted to. And I think that's also super important. You've got to instill those responsible financial decisions at a young age. And if we bought something for our kids and they didn't use it, we made them pay for it. I know that sounds horrible. If they said, I really want this pair of shoes and they didn't wear them, they were like, okay, you got to pay us for those because it was wasteful. And then I put it in their checking account or their savings account. But I wanted them to learn the lesson that, you know, stuff happens. Well, I loved what you said in terms of it needs to become their problem. Can you talk more about that? Because I think that's worth gold. Yeah. So I think recent generations have not engaged in tough love and they don't let their kids fail. And then their kids go out and they have a really hard time. And so when you align incentives, it works really well. And so we did it in actually every aspect of their lives, but we did it in particular in the financial area. So We didn't give big allowances. We lived in an affluent area. Our kids had to buy their own cars. So many of the kids were showing up with brand new Beamers when they turned 16. 
my son drove an old truck, which he then sold to his sister. And they viewed it as a badge of honor because we talked about that from, I mean, we had nice cars, but we talked about what you should be spending your money on and what you can afford. And so I think they saw us limit, but then if they made a bad purchase, we didn't bail them out. And they also paid for their insurance and gasoline. So they were active in sports. Both kids played three sports in a very competitive area in Northern California. And then they also worked. And I'll I'll just tell you a quick anecdote. The funniest thing to me was my son went to work as a cart boy at a local golf course. And so he came home and I said, well, how'd you like it? And he goes, oh man, it's awesome. All the food is free. And I said, well, you understand that right now at your house where you're growing up, all the food is free. We still laugh about that one. But yeah, you know, putting things in economic terms really, I think, is important and helps them understand that there are costs to every decision they make. And you're going to make mistakes, obviously, but you have to solve those. And the safest place to do it is when they're still in your home. Yeah. What I love about your approach is that you just took normal things and you made those teachable moments. Yeah. My kids would say, you know, it was painful sometimes. But (laughs) when we'd go to a store or something where I owned the stock and the service was terrible and I'd say to the clerk, you know, it was a stressful time. I was raising kids. This is why your stock isn't performing. They'd scatter. Right. I'd be like, did you see two middle? (laughs) Oh my gosh, that's great. Yeah. So what would you say, because, you know, I talk to moms all the time and it seems like that a lot of times they use money to, well, they feel bad for their kids or they think they're already working so hard in school you know, they can't have a job or they can't do this and they just feel sorry for them. And so they just get them, you know, buy them things or again, in the affluent school areas, everybody has that. And then they feel bad because their kid doesn't have that. So they're handicapping them. I'm sorry. I think definitely, you know, we were in Northern California, super competitive school district. I mean, I actually felt bad that my son started on all three sports because there were kids that were good, but they couldn't even make the team. And that wasn't good because they, you know, they then had developed other problems. But that was his situation. He also worked and he also got extraordinary grades, which is how he got into the Naval Academy. He also went on a baseball scholarship. Well, a baseball, they didn't have scholarships. So he made it work. My daughter, same thing. She played three sports. She got employee of the year at her job. She worked at a fitness center so she could also work out. And she went off to college and is now running a department and a law firm. So I'm not saying it's easy. I mean, that junior year in high school is hell because you're trying to get them ready for the SAT and the ACT. But where we grew up, people spent money on sports tutors and less money on math tutors. And we were determined not to make that mistake. And so they were well-rounded, well-liked, but they didn't have, you know, the latest of new stuff. And I guess maybe because I grew up without all that stuff, I didn't feel the pressure. It wasn't how we defined ourselves as a family. And I think if parents could step back, and I know it's hard when you're home and you're seeing all this other stuff and you think my kids are being left behind, they can step back, figure out what their kids are good at, and then reinforce that stuff. I mean, my son was afraid to go on roller coasters, and he's now a Navy pilot. So they find their way, right? I mean, I didn't do anything special in that regard, but 
he figured it out mm-hmm. and they will just like we did. Yeah. No, this is great. So what are your thoughts about allowance? I mean, I always have moms ask me, they think, okay, I want to teach them about money through an allowance. And then they go, well, should they do chores to get their allowance or do I just give them money? But my kids had to do chores. I bet you could guess that. But the other thing I did, which you probably wouldn't guess, is I paid them to read in the summer. And it was an advice from a neighbor. And I never really felt quite right about it, but I think it was really helpful to get them to line up the incentive to read because we grew up in Northern California. So the weather was awesome. We lived on a golf course. It, you know, they could have been outside all day long. But I don't know still how I feel about that. But they definitely had chores. And, you know, we had the proverbial chart. And then sometimes they got dinged for, you know, behavior. And then they had to put money back. So I mean, that's when they were younger, when they were bickering in the summer. You know, summers are hell. Yeah. It's some age. <laughs> I took my daughter to the doctor and, he, and I said, she's falling asleep everywhere. He goes, well, tell me about her schedule. Well, she's on the swim team and she made the boys uh, <laughs> all-star little league team. So, you know, she's playing competitive soccer. He goes, yeah, I think maybe you should cut out a, uh, an activity or two. But anyway, I was still living large. Yes. All right. So what other financial tips do you have for the moms listening? that you talk about in your book? I think first and foremost, that investing is accessible to you and your kids. And because my kids had brokerage accounts, we talked about it. I mean, they never knew how much money they had, but you know, we'd talk about a stock idea and then sometimes I would buy it in their portfolio. And I think that ownership, I mean, many of our clients, we do educate our clients' children. So I mentioned I was on the phone with a young woman. We have a game that they can play to think about how to think about stocks. But the Arizona Council of Economic Education and the National Council and your local council are really good resources for ways to think about things and engage them. And I think if you're modeling that in your own life, I understand it's harder when you're a single parent. You know, my mom was a single parent, so I lived it. I was on the easy side of it, I guess. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's modeling, it's talking, and then it's doing. And those are the three things we did. There was no magic. I don't think we're smarter than anybody else. We just felt like this was an important aspect of their lives that they needed to take control of as soon as they could. And waiting till they go off to college, I'm sorry, I think it's too late. Yeah, I agree. So what advice do you have to the women who kind of have let their husbands make kind of all the financial decisions and they want to be more involved? Like, how would they have that conversation? What advice? Would you have? I mean, I think one of the best things they can do is get the book. I mean, interestingly, of course, I'm going to say that, but interestingly, on Amazon, about half of the reviews are from men. And so I think about it as, you know, men should be buying this for every woman in their lives and not just their wives, but their daughters. And the advice is gender neutral. I mean, I do use some things that women would particularly think about, but basically men can read it as well. And so I think if you have the book and your husband sees that, then it makes the conversation a lot easier. The other thing I recommend to people is that I'm on financial news almost every day. And I would advise most people not to listen unless there's a company CEO on, because there's a lot of hyping that goes on. People talk in their book, as we say. And so, I mean, I hope I don't do that. I hope you could listen when I'm on, but generally I wouldn't pay attention there. But I'd go to the websites and I have a list of all the places you can go 
to get free research. And those are places like CNBC.com or Barron's. Well, Barron's you have to pay for, but if you buy no other publication, I would say buy Barron's. It comes once a week and you'll learn so much because the journalists are really, they think like portfolio managers and you get to see how they do mid-year. So you eventually learn who to listen to and not to listen to. But just educating yourself is, you know, I talked about when I was in carpool, like waiting for kids, how I did it. There's a lot of ways you can, <laughs> you can do that in your free time, even though I know most women don't have a lot of free time. But that makes yourself. me laugh. So how did you do that in the carpool line? Oh, I had research reports and Wall Street journals and Sirius XM radio on the financial news networks. But women should not I mean it's their money, too. They should absolutely not be shy or hesitant. I do have one friend who doesn't even know the passwords on her accounts, and it drives me nuts because her husband isn't doing her any favors. She's older than I am, and she should be engaging. But most husbands are relieved. And a lot of our male clients come to us because we encourage them to engage their wives in the process. So I'm curious about men who left reviews for your book. What would they say? This is a must read for my daughters and my wife or the principles are accessible for everyone or appropriate, sorry, for everyone. So, I mean, I do manage billions of dollars of other people's money. So I hope <laughs> I have some things that can benefit both men and women. I think you might have some credibility there. <laughs> Although all you ever remember, I tell people the best thing about being mostly right. Uh, not all of your stocks are going to do well at one time. And I found an interview I'd given in 2003. And the first edition of the book I wrote in 2013. So it was 10 years. I was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to track the performance of these stocks. And that's in this edition as well. Five stocks, two underperformed the market, one performed a little aligned with the market and two outperformed. But the portfolio performed a hundred full percentage points ahead of the market. And so the illustration is meant to show you're not going to get every stock pick right. And sometimes it's going to take a decade. And I give examples of those in my portfolio and then what they've done since then. But and I think it's important for women to have realistic expectations. I think they do. And then if they engage their husbands. We ask our clients, we encourage them to have an account that they trade. So we manage the bulk and then they buy or hold. I have one client that beats me every quarter almost. <laughs> so he takes a lot more risk, but that's he's an <laughs> awesome investor. <laughs> So what makes a good financial advisor? I know I talked about the first edition, but I would say transparency, availability, and respect. I can't tell you how many women have come to me and say, now that I've read your book, my advisor respects me. Well, it shouldn't have taken that. It's their money. And that's what we tell our clients all the time. It's your money. So you can ask us any questions you want. And we tell people, most advisors don't do this. We're actually asset managers. Advisors use our products, but we also have our own clients. And we tell them, you know, here's what we're going to do for you. Here's why we're doing it. And generally they say yes. But if they don't, then we have a conversation around it because it's their money. So I don't think most advisors view it that way. And a lot of places you go, they give you a pie chart. You can pick from five different pie charts. We don't do that. There's nothing wrong with doing that, but your pie chart may change. And so you have to be meeting with your advisor regularly. And that's one of the areas where I see probably the biggest problem for many families, not just 
for women. The women have it in spades because a lot of times, you know, they haven't participated. Yeah. So they don't have the respect they deserve. You talk a lot about investing in one stock. What do you think about those groups of stocks? We just launched one because our minimums are so high and we wanted to democratize, you know, what we do. So we have our own, it's called TGLR, but it's an actively managed ETF in a specific space. There are passive ETFs, and these are baskets of stocks that trade like a stock. So they have a minute by minute or second by second price, unlike a mutual fund, which prices at the end of the day. And they're tax efficient, unlike a mutual fund, which distributes all of the realized gains or losses. But unfortunately, what usually happens is in a down year in a mutual fund, you have realized gains because people are exiting the mutual fund and the portfolio manager selling what works. And so that's overweighted because other stocks are down. I used to run mutual funds. I don't care for them. So baskets of stocks make it easier for busy women. And you don't tend to fall in love with an ETF. Some one of the downsides of owning a stock is that you fall in love with it and yeah. stick with it too long because it's been so good to you. But I think they're fine and they have a place. I encourage women to pay attention to the fees because one of the biggest eroders of total return is our fees. So they compound just like dividends and interest. So you want to be in reasonably priced vehicles. And I show some studies as to what happens over time if you are paying an exorbitant fee. And then the next question that usually gets asked is, how do I decide you know, how much to put in stocks and bonds? So I have some examples of asset allocation, real life examples that were made by experts and how they did over the long term. And then you make a decision yourself. That's too risky for me. I'm going to do this. Mm-hmm. Wonderful advice. Any last advice to the moms listening? That they can do it. And my guess is that if they set up a portfolio and compared it with their husband, most of them would end up doing better than their husbands over a reasonable period of time. So that's the message I want to leave them with. I mean, I, listen, I love men. I have a son. I have a husband. <laughs> this isn't male bashing. It's just a fact. And you know, I think we need to embrace and engage. I'm just going to read you one last quote that it's not mine. It was from Ann Richards who used to be the governor of the great state of Texas. And she said, after all, Ginger Rogers did everything that Fred Astaire did. She just did it backwards and in high heels. <laughs> Love that. Well, I am from the great state of Texas. so And I remember Ann Richards. So I love that. <laughs> yeah, me too. All right. So your book, The Women's Guide to Successful Investing, Achieving Financial Security and Realizing Your Goals. I guess they can find that everywhere books are sold. I think so, but for sure on Amazon. And how can the moms reach you if they have any questions? So I have an author page that is being updated because I forgot to update for about eight years. And that's nancypankler.com. So that should be up and live either now or shortly. Okay. And our firm has a website, which is laffer, L-A-F-F-E-R, Kangler dot com, my last name. And actually, there's a button for the book. We are launching Women of Wealth Initiative, and it's going to be maybe a modest cost, but we're going to have a ton of videos and, you know, written articles. I used to write an article for USA Today every other week or every week, can't remember. So a lot of that stuff is evergreen and it'll be on there. And then we'll be hosting uh, virtual 
presentations. And that is going to be up in the next couple of months. And it, you can get to it from our website. Okay. Well, that is really, really great. All this was such helpful information. So thank you so much for your time. Oh, Khalid, thanks so much for having me. This concludes this week's episode of Power Your Parenting Moms with Teens podcast. If this podcast has been helpful, I would absolutely love it if you could go to Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review. This makes it easier for other moms like you to find the support and encouragement they need. Also, my award-winning, best-selling books, Dial Down the Drama, Reducing Conflict, Reconnecting with Your Teenage Daughter, and my newest release book, Dial Up the Dream, Making Your Daughter's Journey to Adulthood the Best for Both of You. You can find both of these books wherever books are sold. And you can find other great resources and contact me at ColleenOGrady.com, and that has two L's and two E's. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.